Now, this quote is attributed to Ray Kroc, who's the founder of McDonald's. I don't know if he actually said this. It's attributed to Ray Kroc. And the quote goes like this. He says, my priorities are God first, family second, and McDonald's hamburgers third. And when I go to work on Monday morning, that order reverses. Now, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and just assume that he was a godly man. I personally have no idea where Ray Kroc was with the Lord. I don't know anything about his biography except that he did moderately well with his hamburger business. But other than that, that was a joke, by the way. Um, other than that, I don't know anything. But, so let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he was a godly man and that all that he meant by that statement was that when he gets to the office on Monday morning, he's laser-focused on the company. But regardless, as Christians here this morning, we need to know, we need to understand that for us, for those of us who name the name of Jesus, we never reverse that order. For those of us who are Christians, it is always God first, then family second, and then work comes in third place. Our attention might shift to work on Monday morning, but our priorities never do. And we see that here in the book of Colossians. Paul has strategically placed the order of the household the way that he has. And we're to the end of this teaching on the Christian household now. But the order has been God first, and then family, and then work. Within this section, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through 4, verse 1, the Lord has been referenced seven different times. That means that Paul's whole understanding of the Christian family and the Christian work life is oriented under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is God first. Everything that we do is for the Lord. And then next, you need to notice that he shifted the attention to your spouse in verses 18 and 19. So it's God, then it's your spouse. Then come the children in verses 20 and 21. And then finally... It's your work in verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. That's the priority there. God, then your marriage, then your children, and then your work. And yet, how many Christians and non-Christians alike get this almost entirely backward? They begin with work and devote everything to that. And then it's their kids and then their marriage gets the leftovers. Well, today we're going to finally focus in on work relations in this last section on the Christian household. But first, we need to briefly discuss the specific type of work and worker that Paul is writing to and writing about in Colossians chapter 3 because it's very important. In verse 22, he begins by addressing a different group here. And the English Standard Version, which we're reading out of, translates it as bondservants. So he begins writing to bondservants. The word there in Greek is douloi, which is the plural form of the word doulos. And in Greek, doulos is the usual word, the typical word for slave. And so a lot of English translations soften the word with bondservant or something else. But the literal word here in Greek is slave. And Paul here is writing to slaves and then to masters. Now, when we who are on this side of the horrible atrocity that was the African slave trade and then slavery in the United States, find the Apostle Paul 
writing instructions to Christian slaves and to Christian masters, it doesn't sit well with us. And that's, of course, understandable. I've had people on college and university campuses tell me that one of the main reasons that they will not become a Christian is because of the Bible's stance on slavery. Now, I don't have time in this sermon to deal extensively with slavery in the Greco-Roman Empire, which is what Paul's writing about, or to deal with slavery in the Old Testament, although I've preached sermons on that topic before, and I'd be happy to discuss that with anybody who's interested. But I do want to make a couple of introductory remarks before we just move into the text here. The first thing that we need to understand about slavery at this time is that slavery was widespread. Scholars estimate that as much as one-third of the population within the Roman Empire were enslaved. So this was a massive institution in the Roman Empire. One out of every three individuals found themselves in the relationship of being a slave to a particular master. It was very widespread. Secondly, we need to understand that slavery in the Roman Empire was different in many respects to the African slave trade. Most significantly, slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race or ethnicity. Anybody from any race or any ethnicity could be and were enslaved in the Roman Empire. Nevertheless, to be a slave in the Roman Empire, like being a slave at any time in history, was still terribly undesirable for the majority of people. And so we need not sugarcoat that this morning as we get into this subject. But the question becomes then, why didn't the early Christians just outright condemn slavery in the New Testament? Why wouldn't they just have said right from the outset, this is wrong and this needs to be changed? Well, for the record, the type of slavery that existed in the African slave trade is directly condemned in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul lists a whole bunch of sins and one of them is enslavers, which is a word that literally means people who take someone else captive. They kidnap somebody in order to sell that person into slavery. We also see that practice condemned in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 16. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So this also shows us the biblical position on modern-day sex trafficking. The idea that you actually take somebody, you kidnap somebody for the express purpose of selling them into slavery. Old Testament and New Testament condemn that sort of a practice. But again, it's a fair and legitimate question to say, why wasn't every form of slavery condemned in the New Testament? Well, first of all, that would have been out of the reach for Christians at the time that the New Testament was written. When the New Testament was written, Christianity was a fledgling movement in the Roman Empire. The numbers of Christians were in the low thousands, and 
If Christians had started beating the drum of abolition in the Roman Empire, that would have caused Christianity to get stomped out. Christianity at the time of the New Testament was already coming into the crosshairs of the Roman government because Christians had a different Lord than Caesar. Christians were viewed as countercultural and revolutionary. And Nero, of course, uh, brought about a great persecution of the Christians. If Christianity, again, had been beating that drum, it would have brought them into the crosshairs of the Roman government even more. A century before Paul's writing, three famous slave revolts had already taken place. The last and most famous was led by Spartacus, who many of you have heard. So if Christianity, again, was trying to preach against slavery at this point, it would have been a strategic catastrophe. But second and more importantly... The early church was primarily focused on and concerned with seeing people set free from bondage to sin and death and finding eternal life in Jesus. Your place in life, even if a person were a slave, is only temporal. But your place in the afterlife is eternal. And so Christians at the outset, we're most concerned with seeing people, no matter where they found themselves on the social spectrum, coming to know Jesus so that they could experience eternal life. Therefore, dealing with slavery, as important as that topic is, was a second-tier issue for the early church. The Christians believed that as people were reconciled to God, it would transform their lives and social change would come as a result of that. But I believe the seeds of emancipation are sown all over the New Testament. And it's these seeds of emancipation that later Christians picked up on when they rallied the Western world in its condemnation of the institution of slavery. In fact, if you just back up to verse 11 of chapter 3 here in Colossians, you see the subversive nature of this teaching and these seeds of emancipation right there. In Colossians 3.11 we read this. Paul writes here, speaking of in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul there is saying, listen, whether you're a slave or you're free, if you believe in Jesus, Christ is in you. He says a similar thing in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. There Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul's teaching in Galatians is, Look, whether you're a slave or you're free, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are a son of God. He's completely democratizing the church and saying we're all equals by faith. If you've come to Christ, then you are a son of God. In Philemon, which is a letter written to a slave master about his runaway slave Onesimus, Paul writes this in verses 15 and 16. He writes to Philemon, he says, For this perhaps is why he his runaway slave, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, as a beloved brother, 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul writes this, were you a slave when called? He's saying, were you a slave when you got saved, when you became a Christian? Do not be concerned about it. And then he says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So you can see the, Apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's preference on the matter. If you can become free, absolutely avail yourself of that. But the New Testament attitude towards slavery is this. Your status in society is irrelevant to your status before God and your status in the church where the people of God assemble. But if that's the station in life that you find yourself in, bring glory to God and light to the world in it by being the best slave that you can be until the opportunity for freedom presents itself. So the New Testament is not pro-slavery. The New Testament is pro-glorifying God no matter where you find yourself in your life. Okay, with that being said, let's bring this passage closer to home now. Now the closest modern application to a passage like this would be employer and employee relations. Now of course, no employee, if you work for somebody here in this church today, no employee is a slave. We have unprecedented rights and protections in our workplaces. And we should thank God for that. Those things create workplaces that are about as fair and friendly as have ever existed in the history of, of the world. So we should rejoice in the progress that we've made in workplace relations. Of course, that's not to say that every workplace is wonderful and perfect or that every employer is awesome. But the way that Paul instructs those who are in authority in workplace relations and, and the way that he instructs those who are under authority in workplace relations here in Colossians are helpful for us even today as we try to live out our Christianity in the workplace. And that's something we certainly need to be focused on. So what does it look like to live out our Christianity in the workplace? What does it look like to, to work in a Christian way? Well, I want to read from the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says about the Christian life in general. And let this sort of be foundational for our thinking on the workplace. Jesus famously says this in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is teaching here that as Christians, you and I should have a distinct flavor to our life. There should be a saltiness to our life. There should be a brightness to the way that you and I live, to our lives, and to our work lives. That would be included in that. That there should be, again, this sort of distinct flavor to the way that you and I live out all of our life, and again, as we specifically live out our work lives. The title of today's sermon is related to that. It's working with a Christian flavor. 
What does it look like to do our work with that kind of distinctly Christian flavor that Jesus is talking about? What does it mean to work in a distinctly Christian way? Is it having a Bible verse on your email signature? Is it having the ichthus, which is the Christian fish symbol? Is it having that on your business card as you hand it out? Is it going around the office space and walking up in every cubicle and anointing all your other employees with essential oils? Is it volunteering to pray over a corporate lunch when you get together with the rest of the team? Well, while those things might be a part of what it means to be a Christian in the workplace, except for the essential oil thing probably, I would argue that that's definitely not the thrust of what it means to work in a Christian way. Now let me begin by saying this, that in many ways it's not all that obvious how a Christian's work is different from a non-Christian's work, at least in terms of what we produce, in the things that we make or the things that we do in the workplace. Like for example, there's not really a uniquely Christian way to frame a house. There's not a uniquely Christian way to perform CPR. There's not the Christian way to fill out a spreadsheet, right? So a lot of the things that we do in the workplace, kind of the what we're doing, what we're producing, really isn't all that different from what a non-Christian would be doing in the workplace. And so we shouldn't be surprised that many non-Christians do as good of or sometimes even better work than Christians do with the things that they're making or the things that they're doing at work. And we should thank God for their excellent work. But even though the what isn't all that different, the things that we produce is, is often not different from what non-Christians would produce, how we produce, how we work ought to be dramatically different from how a non-Christian works. And this is largely what Paul is getting at in this text. It's mainly about how we do our work or our attitude, or you could call it our work ethic. So let's look more carefully at what Paul actually says here. First, he deals with those who are, again, in his day and age, slaves, but those who were under authority in workplace relations. Again, the modern parallel, I suppose, would be those who are employees. Okay, you're underneath authority in your work environment. So we'll begin there with thinking this through from the perspective of employees in verses 22 through 25. Let's reread this passage and consider what it says. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Let's pause there. Now, slaves who were in total submission to the authority of their masters were called by Paul then to obey them in everything. They were under their authority, he says, obey them in everything. Now, there is obviously no direct equivalent to this in the modern work world, but Modern companies and organizations do have hierarchies of authority. And generally speaking, we should honor that. Our general posture as employees that are working for somebody else should be a general posture of submission and deference and a willingness to obey the things that they desire us to do. I love how Paul, though, even when talking to slaves who would have been in the worst conditions in a workplace, 
He relativizes the authority of their masters. Notice he says, obey in everything your earthly masters, as opposed to your true master, your heavenly master, who he talks about in this passage, which of course is Jesus. Paul's saying, obey them, these earthly masters. It's, it's as if Paul's saying, their authority has limits. Yes, they might be your master, and yes, you obey them, but they're only an earthly master. They only have so much authority. It's significant that slaves are commanded here to obey their earthly masters, but to fear the Lord. Ultimately, their allegiance as Christians is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's larger point to both Christian slaves and Christian masters is that you have an ultimate boss, an ultimate master who is the Lord Jesus. In verse 22, he talks about fearing the Lord. In verse 23, he writes, as for the Lord. In verse 24, he writes, from the Lord and the Lord Christ. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, he talks about your master in heaven. And so Paul's kind of big idea as he talks about the workplace here is that all you do and whatever you do as a Christian is done for the Lord. So the employee's action is to obey those who are in authority over you. It's to do what you're asked to do. It's to do your job, to get the job done. But their attitude matters too. And it's significant that, that Paul here spends half a verse on their action, this idea of obeying, do, do the job, do the work. And then he spends one and a half verses on their attitude. God cares about what we do. But God also cares about how we do what we do and why we do what we do. So again, we're, we're kind of looking here in this text about a Christian work ethic, the how and the why of the work that we do. And I want you to know that this applies to your work, of course, but this also applies to your school, where you're in a position of doing work under the authority of others. This applies to chores in your home, where you're doing work under the authority of someone else. This applies to ministry work as we're serving the Lord in the context of a church or another organization. This is the ethic that we're called to. What does it look like? Paul writes this. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. What Paul is getting at here is that for those of us who are working under authority, we are called to work hard and to do our job and not only when the boss is looking. That's what that idea of trying to do your work by way of eye services. It's this idea that you're only committed to doing the job. You're only working diligently. You're only working hard when the supervisor or the boss has their eyes on you. And so Paul here is rebuking the person who slacks off in their work when the eyes of the boss are not on them. The person who takes the extra long lunch breaks or comes in late or leaves early on the boss's day off. The person who sits and spends hours on social media while they're at their desk throughout the day on the clock. The person who only works on their assignments when the teacher is watching. Paul's rebuking that kind of a work ethic. Now, when I used to work at the happiest place on earth, I'm talking about McDonald's, not Disneyland. 
I hated my job. Now, you might be wondering, how could you hate your job when you're surrounded by supersized fountain drinks and chicken nuggets and McFlurries? But I did. I hated my job. I didn't want to be there. Yet, whenever my supervisor would be there or would come around, I would switch gears. And I would work really, really hard. I would smile at every customer. I would ask them. I worked drive through so I had my little headset and my little, you know, you click it on and off. I'd smile. I'd ask every customer, would you like to supersize that? You know, I'm doing all the things that the boss wants me to do. But when my boss wasn't around, I would slack off. I would goof off. I wouldn't go and restock things like I should be doing or whatever my other tasks were at the time. I would just slack off. You know why? Because I didn't care about McDonald's. And I knew I was going to get paid the same hourly wage no matter how hard I worked. So I just slacked off. And guess what? It worked. My supervisors loved me. They thought I was a great employee. I totally fooled them. They, they really liked having me. I probably was the model drive through guy when I was there for them. But I was only obeying by eye service. I was being a people pleaser. And this is the exact type of behavior and attitude that God is telling us not to have. We're supposed to work, he says, from a sincere heart. That word there, that expression means undivided service. Undivided service. Think of it as being focused in on your job, on your tasks. I'm not divided between three or four different things that I'm thinking about today. When I'm working in my job for somebody else, I'm focused. It's undivided service. It's not distracted. He also says that we're to work heartily. That word speaks of your inner person, your heart or your soul is how it's translated in some places. And the idea there is that we are giving everything as we work. It's a person who's working energetically. It's a person who's working diligently on the task ahead of them. Now, when I worked at McDonald's, as I said, I had no motivation to work like that. Again, I didn't care about McDonald's. I didn't care about the company. But I'll tell you, when I became a Christian, my attitude toward a workplace changed. Because as a Christian, I began to fear the Lord like Paul talks about here. All of a sudden now, it wasn't just, oh, this is about McDonald's. It was, oh, hold on, I work for Jesus. And Jesus is calling me to do all of my work as unto him. As Christians, all of this changes. We are working for the Lord, he says in verse 23, and not for men. And so as we approach the workplace, all of a sudden, the attitude of the Christian and the mentality of the Christian is not, oh, I'm working for my boss. It's I'm working for Jesus. I'm serving Jesus through my work right now. What sort of zeal, what sort of focus, what sort of energy would I be giving to Jesus if he was my supervisor right now? And however you answer that question, that's the sort of energy and zeal and focus we should be giving in our workplace. What I love about this is that an employee with this sort of mentality doesn't even need to be supervised. An employee who works like this would be deeply trusted by their supervisors and management and the owner of the company. They don't even need to be supervised because they are supervised. 
by Jesus. And they're working for Jesus no matter what else is going on, whether the eyes of the boss are on them or not. I think as Christians, we should be the hardest workers in our organizations with parameters. Maybe hard's the wrong word because that has connotations of overworking and becoming a workaholic. But we should be, let's put it this way, the most faithful and devoted and zealous workers while we're at work, while we're doing the the tasks and the things that we're called to do. Or put it differently, employers should be excited if they're doing your interview and they learn that you're a Christian. Because they go, oh my gosh, I love when I get to hire Christians because of the best employees that I have in my organization. Unfortunately, I think lots of Christians give Jesus and give Christianity a bad name because of our work ethics. Christians that are comfortable going in and being lazy or unproductive or unreliable in the workplace. And so at the first point, we need to stop and just ask ourselves, Am I giving 100%? Do I work hard? Am I working as unto the Lord? Or am I just doing the bare minimum? Am I just trying to skate by? Am I just trying to do enough that they won't fire me or demote me or something like that? Now, someone might say, Daniel, I tried that. I tried to work really hard whether the boss was there or not. And guess what? Nobody even recognized it. In fact, other people who are people pleasers and were just doing the bare minimum, they got the recognition, they got the raise, they got the promotion, they got the bonuses. I tried that already. Well, friend, if that's you, look at verse 24 with me. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul wants to remind you that you will get your reward. He says this in verse 24, knowing knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I love this. Can you imagine how many slaves in the Roman Empire, especially if they had non-Christian bosses or masters, can you imagine how many of them never got appreciated, never got rewarded? And Paul is saying, knowing, having confidence that there is a reward coming for you. And it's not just a promotion. And we can can think about this as employees today. It's not just a promotion. It's not a raise. It's not a corner office. It's not a better title. It is an infinitely greater reward than anything that a supervisor, manager, or boss could ever give you. He calls it an inheritance. He says they will receive the inheritance. Now, this is, this is great because some scholars point out that for a slave in the ancient Roman world, there would have been virtually no chance that they would have ever been eligible to inherit any earthly property or resources. And here comes the Apostle Paul, and here comes Christianity announcing to slaves that you have an inheritance waiting for you. And it's the exact same inheritance that a master has. It's the exact same inheritance that Caesar would have if he got right with Jesus. What is this inheritance? Well, Paul's already addressed this back in chapter 1. He introduced the idea of this inheritance back there in verses 12 through 14. He writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what is our reward, those of us who are followers of Jesus and who are serving the Lord Christ? Our reward is that you and I have our sins forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. All of the sins that we have committed and all the sins that we are still going to commit in our lives were nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago so that you do not have to pay for them yourself. And not just that, because our sin has been dealt with on the cross. For those of us who are Christians, we have been qualified by the Father to have an inheritance, and that inheritance is that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of Jesus. You have a place in Christ's kingdom for all of eternity. In other words, the inheritance is this, that you're forgiven of your sins and you are brought into relationship with God and you will dwell with him in heaven forever. That's what we have waiting for us. And so Paul is saying, To anybody who is under authority in the workplace, regardless of the circumstances and the structure, regardless of the relative goodness or awfulness of your employer, he is saying, listen, don't be discouraged. Take heart because your true master sees your labor and it's not in vain. And one day you are going to have a reward that is going to outdo any and every reward you could ever have on earth. How encouraging this must must have been to slaves. And I was thinking about people who feel trapped in their jobs. People who do not find their work satisfying, but they're doing it. Maybe because they have to pay those bills. And maybe they do have a terrible boss. And they wish that they could be doing something else, but they're not. And they feel very trapped. How encouraging is this instruction in Colossians chapter 3. Because maybe things will improve here, but maybe they won't. And although that might feel discouraging for somebody sitting here today, just thinking, I got to keep doing this for another 10 years or 15 years or 20 years and hope I can retire. Maybe that's discouraging and I understand that. But listen, it doesn't have to give you over to despair. Because there is a time limit on that. And one day, as we continue to honor Jesus and serve him with our lives, there will be great reward for us, an inheritance in heaven. Well, let's look at 25. It's the last verse that is written to slaves here in this passage. He writes this, and this is sort of an explanation coming out of the last verse, that they're serving the Lord Christ. He says, for or because the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. So verse 25 functions as a warning now that for those who are doing wrong, they're going to be paid back for that. And they're going to be paid back by an impartial judge. So he's referring to the Lord here. Now scholars debate about who Paul is writing to in verse 25. Is this this warning addressed to slaves or is the warning addressed to masters or is the warning addressed to both? And you'll find scholars that that land in all three of those positions. I I tend to believe that the warning 
is two slaves, but it's about their masters. What I mean by that is Paul still here in verse 25 is talking to the slaves. He doesn't formally start talking to masters until chapter 4. So he's writing to them, but I believe what he has to say to them is actually about ungodly or unjust masters. So it's functioning then as, an, as a further encouragement for these slaves to serve the Lord and to serve him with all of their might, recognizing that even if they have an awful master, or for us today, again, even if you're in an awful work situation, but you can't get out of it, it's an encouragement to endure because Paul is writing and saying, listen, if that master is unjust, if they're not treating you fairly, they're going to be, they're going to be held accountable for that. And even though they, they're getting away with it right now, there's going to come a day of reckoning. There is a God in heaven. There is a master over all of our affairs and over all of our work. And that master shows zero partiality. He doesn't care how much money they have, how much power they have, how much authority they have. He shows zero partiality. And he will, on that last day, judge everybody equally and justly. And so I think this functions as this final encouragement to slaves in that first century context. And again, to us today to say, serve Jesus faithfully. We don't have to worry about those who are over us. We don't have to worry about whether they get theirs or not, or if this all works out fairly in our workplaces. We just focus on serving Christ, and he'll take care of everything else. Okay, finally, Paul now addresses employers or bosses in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read this last verse together. Paul writes, Masters, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So if you find yourself placed in a position of authority in the workplace, you're a boss over other people, God is calling you to treat those who work for you or who work under you justly and fairly. God is calling you to not mistreat them, God is calling you to not show favoritism to the people that you like and be harsh or mean to the people that you don't like or the people that you aren't friends with. No, you are to treat each one fairly. So what does that look like? Well, those who work hard and those who perform well earn your trust and they are rewarded for their positive work. Those who don't perform, those who are lazy or unreliable, are corrected, or perhaps let go if it comes to that. You're even-handed, you're just, you're giving people what they actually deserve. You're not saying, hold on, I like this person, I'm going to continue to gloss over their failures. I don't like this person, I'm going to hold them back or hold them down. Christian bosses are to have just standards that apply to everyone who works for them. Now in the parallel passage to this, which we've looked at in each of these teachings, over in Ephesians 6, Paul adds another note to masters that I think is so helpful. This is Ephesians 6, 9. Paul there writes this. He says, masters, do the same to them. What is he speaking of? He's talking about rewarding those who do good. And he says, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Notice that at further instruction there. To masters, he says, stop your threatening. 
This is the third time now that Paul has expressed his concern over authoritarian or domineering leadership styles. Regarding wives, he said this, do not be harsh with them. Regarding children, he said, do not provoke them. And now regarding servants, he says, do not threaten them. Notice that Christians are called to live out their faith consistently in every sphere of their life. It is inappropriate for a Christian to be one way in the home, godly, upright, and one way in the church, godly, upright, and then show up in the office on Monday morning and totally live like a non-Christian. And all of a sudden, step into this different frame of mind. Step into this place now where you live just like the world. That's inappropriate. Paul here is calling for clear consistency across the board in the lives of Christians. That we are the same person in our marriage as we are in our parenting, as we are in the workplace. I knew a guy who was a very successful businessman. And he was a very well-known leader in our church. Not this church, but a previous church that I was a part of. And I had known this man virtually my entire life and just always thought this is an amazing godly man. But when I got older, I ended up interacting with some people both in my church but also people that were non-Christians in the community and finding out from them that this guy was a horrible boss. That he would yell at and threaten and cuss out his employees. And that nobody wanted to work with him. He was domineering, authoritarian, and mean. And nobody wanted to work with him, and people did not like to work for him. And I remember just being completely blown away by this. To me, it was like such a massive contradiction. And all I could think to myself was, how has this been okay for so long? How has nobody corrected this? But the problem was that for this man, he had somehow separated his Christianity from his work. So that again, he was one guy in the home and one guy in the church in front of everybody else. But when he showed up to the office, he shifted into work mode. Family, as Christians, we don't ever shift into any other mode. We are Christians. We are followers of Jesus. And we seek to be faithful to Jesus across the board in every area of our lives. There is no shift. We fear Christ at all times, whatever we do as he writes. As bosses or supervisors, we create healthy work cultures, not toxic ones. As bosses, we strive to value and treat everybody who works for us and everybody who works with us justly and fairly. We honor and value everyone from the highest to the lowest in the company. There's no partiality. We're just, we're fair. And we're gentle like Jesus, as we've talked about these last three weeks. We're not authoritarian. We're not threatening people. We're trying to lovingly lead and encourage people to get the job done. Now, again, just like when we talked about parenting, that doesn't mean you don't correct. That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences when people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. But how do we handle that kind of stuff? What kind of women or men are we with authority? That tells a lot about who you actually are. They, they say that you learn most about a person's character when they have power. So who are we when we have authority? How do we lead? I wonder if the people who report to you, if they would describe you as a gentle and kind and fair boss. Or if maybe they'd describe you with different adjectives. 
Now we'll close here. The motivation for treating your employees justly, for Paul here at least, is twofold. There's two reasons that you should be motivated to do this. Number one is because you are equal before the eyes of God. We already talked about that from some of Paul's teaching elsewhere. And I just find this so remarkable that in the early church, there would have been people that were a part of the slave class in the Roman Empire that were gathered in the church and people who were masters in the Roman Empire gathered in the same exact congregations. If that weren't true, then Paul would not be directly addressing slaves and then out of the same or out of the other side of his mouth addressing masters. And they're all coming and they're gathering in the same church worshiping the Lord Jesus. And every single person, no matter what their social class was, was equal before the eyes of God. Christian slaves and Christian masters stood to inherit the exact same thing. And in the Philemon passage, they are brothers in Christ. And so the first motivation to treat their slaves justly and fairly, which was not commonplace in the Roman world, is because that person is your equal before God. But number two, and we see this here in verse one, the second motivation is because you, even if you're in the position of authority and power, you also are a person under authority. You have a master and his name is Jesus. He is your boss in heaven and he is going to judge you for the way that you treat people that you're responsible for. He shows no partiality, we saw in the passage in Ephesians 6, 9. And so for Paul, he wants to remind those, remind those that are in these positions of authority that, again, God is watching. God is paying attention to the way that you steward that authority. And if you're a true Christian, that judgment is not going to be you being consigned to hell. Because even your sin in the workplace was nailed to the cross. But the Bible is very clear that Christians are going to be judged by the Lord in eternity. Now, what does that look like? How does all that pan out? I can't answer that for you. I, I don't exactly know, and I don't think the Bible spells all of that out for us, but the Bible does tell us that we will give an account, even as believers, for everything that we have done, for the way that we live, and we will suffer loss as believers for our sins that we commit in Christ. And so for a believer, that's a strong motivation to say, I want to glorify the Lord. Let's tie all this together and close. As Christians, God cares about our work and so should we. He cares about what we do, but he also cares about how we do it and why we do it. And we're called to work for the Lord. Whatever we do is done for him. If we're under authority in the workplace, we do our jobs well and we honor those who are over us. We're diligent. We pour our hearts into the work that we have not just the things that we like, and not just if we get recognition. And if we're in positions of authority over others in the workplace, we're to be just and fair. We treat everybody the same. We don't play favorites. We don't withhold what is due to somebody. And we're not domineering. We're not threatening to our employees. We're not harsh with them. We're creating a culture that's healthy, not toxic. And we always remember that while it is true that we are in a position of authority in our workplace, we are at the same time under authority with Jesus. So what do we do if we failed at this? I can't be the only one 
reading through this passage and seeing some glaring inconsistencies in my own life. None of us have been perfect employees and none of us have been perfect employers. So what do we do with our failures? Well, we could begin by confessing our failures to the Lord and also confessing our failures to people if that's appropriate. If we've done something to somebody in our work relations that we know is sinful and wrong, we don't just run away from that. We don't ignore that. We certainly don't lie or blame shift. We go and we confess that to them and we seek their forgiveness. And beyond that, what can we do? We can repent, meaning that we can change course. We can change direction. And so we can come before the Lord as Christians, confident that all of our sin is paid for by Jesus and confident that as we seek his grace to change and to do better in the workplaces, that God's not going to withhold his grace from us. He wants, us. he wants to see us glorifying him in the workplace even more than we want to see ourselves doing it. So as we seek his forgiveness and we seek his power and his grace to grow in these areas, we can trust that he's going to meet us there and that he's going to help us to honor him more in the future than we have done in the past. And I want to end there today. I just want to pray that God, in his grace, would empower us, whether we're employees or employers, to represent Jesus well, to bring him glory, or as Jesus put it, to be salt and light in the workplace. So let me please pray for all of us as we close.